Game Changer Episode 12, Taking the Work Out of Work, featuring Ross Smith of Microsoft. Welcome to Game Changer, a series on using gamification to engage employees. Join us as industry experts discuss one of the hottest trends in business today. Using game thinking to engage employees in work, wellness, recruiting, and more. This is a special podcast series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, The Engaging Leader. And now, with nearly 20 years of experience helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees at Fortune 500 companies and other organizations, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Game Changers. This is the show for CEOs, HR executives, and other business leaders to learn about internal gamification. Over the course of this series, you'll hear examples and pitfalls, discover how to assess when it's an appropriate strategy, and learn to evaluate gamification partners and game design ideas. I am Jesse Leahy, and today we're talking with Ross Smith about productivity gamification. Ross is Director of Test in Skype at Microsoft, where he's worked for over 20 years and has acquired seven patents. He and his team have helped Microsoft reinvent a number of business processes using gamification, including the Windows Language Quality Game. Ross Smith, welcome to Game Changer. Hey, Jesse. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Ross, you've been one of the earliest folks playing around in this emerging area called gamification. What is your personal history, and how did you get to be involved in this area? Well, I've grown up playing games. I you know, loved board games when I was young, and then uh, spent a ton of time in high school playing pinball and video games, kind of the early pong and atari and all that and so that kind of i've always been a gamer and um several years ago in the windows team we uh we had an intern come in and work with us we were trying to sort of what's today known as crowdsourcing but really engage people from around the team in sort of a voluntary activity and we built a simple uh hangman like game and saw amazing engagement and participation literally overnight by doing a simple thing and thought, wow, there's really something here. And we've just, that kind of kicked things off and we've just kind of been experimenting ever since. Now you led the reinvention of a business process using gamification, which you called the Windows Language Quality Game. And that was so monumental that it was the big example that kicked off Kevin Warback's recent book, For the Win. Can you tell us the history behind that initiative? Yes, absolutely, and and certainly it was uh, it was a team effort. There was a lot of lot of great folks involved, um, and really what we wanted to do was there's a sort of the business process around uh, language translation and localization of Windows and other large software projects is is very complex and time consuming, particularly when it comes to the more obscure languages. You may have uh, only a, a, a handful of sort of native language speakers or vendor companies or people that can do the translation and then you'll want also someone to verify. So you really queue, start to queue up the languages. And what we wanted to do was leverage the fact that, you know, Microsoft has tens of thousands of employees all around the world uh, who all, you know, obviously have a, have a stake in the success of Windows who speak a variety of languages that we that we ship the product in. So we wanted to create some way to engage folks from around the world to help us assess the quality 
of the translation effort. And so we built a fairly straightforward web-based game to essentially crowdsource assessment of the linguistic quality. And what we came to learn over time, we had tremendous success. It was, we had about 4,000 people participate, 4,500 people, uh, and they reviewed over half a million screens. And what we realized was if you think about you know, particularly Windows, if you wanted to install a pre-release version of Windows and you were passionate about the language, the linguistic quality, because perhaps, you know, Windows is going back to your your parents at home in, in, your, in your home country or friends are going to use it, you have a certain sort of civic pride around the quality. And so you want to go take a look and see how things look. But for an operating system, that's a pretty expensive proposition. You have to go back up your machine and install the pre-release version and then kind of grovel through each dialogue to see how things look. Versus the way we did it with a simple game was just, hey, I go to this website and the dialogues, I choose my language and the dialogues kind of fly in with a little animation and I can review them and earn points and be on a leaderboard and stuff like that. So the, the cost of participation and if you, uh, the Dutch philosopher Johan Huizenga talks about the magic circle of play where you can kind of come in and enter and it's a voluntary activity. And this allowed that. People could, at lunchtime, instead of playing solitaire, they could come and play the Windows language quality game and contribute to a broader initiative for the company, yet not make a huge commitment of their time. They could do it on a voluntary basis and kind of come and go as they please. Because this was essentially Microsoft employees volunteering their time. They're not, this isn't part of the regular job. Right. So we, we are trying to go after the discretionary time people might have at lunchtime or, you know, after work or something like that. And just out of the, you know, like I said, sort of the, the citizenship of being an employee to contribute some of their spare time and their core skills of native language ability to help us assess the quality. Now, can you bring us up to date? Is that game still going on today or has it outlived its purpose? Well, it's kind of it's kind of spun off into a couple different, I guess, children, grandchildren. <laughs> and I think what what we've learned from that, and it, it will probably continue to go on. What what we've learned from that is people who roll out the exact same game to do the same thing are not seeing the success that the original saw because it's the same game, right? Mm-hmm. But where you add new game mechanics, you have to keep fresh. If you you know, I'm a big Madden fan, right? And you have <laughs> new players and, and you know sometimes new teams and new plays and you, you have to keep things fresh to get people to continue to play. So um, it's it's something that we've learned that, you know, as then we'll probably along the way here do another version ourselves and to do that we'll add new game mechanics and new elements to keep it fresh for people so that so that's not just the same old thing. What light has gamification in general shed on how we think about work and employee engagement? Well, I think if you think back to sort of early civilization, games and play and recreation were intertwined with work and life, right? There was really no separation. You went hunting and fishing to gather food or children played games to learn how to be adults. You celebrated festivals, things like that. And then the industrial era came along and, and those two things were separated, right? We had the mechanization and urbanization of work. Things like the org chart and the time clock, the phrase on time, all came to rise during the industrial era. And great advances in production and, and sort of industrial progress. But it was also the greatest rise in, in sort of dedicated recreation. So the uh, Yellowstone Park in, I think, 1871, the, the, the first national park system, the traveling circus, the phonograph, the photograph, all came to rise during 
the industrial era as people separated work and play. And as we come back to knowledge work, and you know, in 1959, Peter Drucker came up with the term knowledge worker, or Richard Florida's rise of the creative class, um, the idea that we're now using our minds more than our bodies to get work done, bringing play and games and recreation back into the workplace helps people to be creative and innovative. And so to keep games as a motivational technique, if you think about the, you know, the metaphorical you know, 17-year-old boy in the, in the basement playing Halo, he's definitely engaged. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And so if you think about bringing that into the workplace and using game elements and game mechanics to keep people engaged in, a, in a, what we've seen in, in a voluntary or citizenship activity can be tremendously effective as a, as a sort of 21st century business process. Now, you said that collaborative play helps build trust creativity and innovation why is that well if if you and i play a game together and uh let's say we're on a softball team you might be the ceo and i'm a line level employee but we're on the softball team together i learn a lot about how you uh react to competition how you like to work together you know i I learn a lot about you in the context of of a game of fun right so the Mm -hmm. risk of failure the risk of alienation is is very low because we're in there we're having fun and it's just a game uh and then when i bring that back to the workplace i've learned a lot more about you and if you think about you know what what is trust it's you know i want to be able to predict your future reaction like if you're taking that same example you're the ceo and i have to bring you some bad news and if i know that boy you know when we played that softball game and we lost you know you reacted very uh strongly to that bad news, I now have some context for what's going to happen in the workplace when I bring you bad news. If I see that when you lost the game, hey, we played hard, that's, we gave it our best shot, and you know you don't really have a negative reaction, and that's more, you know, you think more about optimistically about the future, that's going to set some context for me in the workplace. And so now I, I can trust more because I'm able to predict your future behavior that, hey, I'm going to bring you this bad news. Whereas if I know that you know you're going to react negatively i'm going to prepare for that i can still trust you because i can prepare for it now what without a game or without that in this case softball context um if i don't know how i can't predict how you're going to react sometimes you you know scream and yell and sometimes you say ah you shrug it off i can't trust i don't know what i don't know how to prepare mm-hmm. because i can't i can't predict what your future reaction is going to be so bringing it again inside this magic circle where we can come and play a game together and and ideally collaborate and work together towards a common goal within a game allows me to learn a lot about my coworkers or my fellow players that then I can bring back into the workplace and be more effective because I now have relationships built on collaboration and even competition, but with the risk of failure being a lot lower because it's a game. That's easy, I think, to see in the terms of softball, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. But So take that magic circle and apply it to work. Are there any examples that you can share that would show those similar kind of dynamics? Because I don't see it necessarily in the Windows language quality game where it feels a little more like we're playing by ourselves there. Well, we did a game in the Windows security team where we wanted to get some additional effort towards some sort of call them side projects for lack of a better term. We separated into team-based play with coaches and players. So the coaches would do sort of the day job and continue kind of treading water on the regular work. And the, and the runners in this case, um, it was kind of an Olympic themed thing. 
the runners would do some of these side projects. And we, and we ran this for a week where we separated into teams and then the end of the week had sort of a little celebration for the winners. But what we, what we were able to see in this is that I think we had, you know, one coach, two or three runners on each team that, you know, if, if you said normally, okay, Jesse Ross is going to go do some cool side project then we want you to do his day job while he's doing that, you're probably not going to have a great reaction to that. Right? It's like, <laughs> right. well, wait a minute. By building some game mechanics around this and making it, you know, a, a team-based competition, well, now I'm, you and I share a similar goal, right? We want our team to be the best. And so I'm willing to take, or you're willing to take on my day job work because we share this common goal. And so the structure of game elements and game mechanics around the work allows us to accomplish things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. And, and it still comes across as fun. And, you know, hey, we're, we're winning and we can talk smack back and forth to the other teams and stuff like that. In the meantime, you're doing my day job, right? Which without the game doesn't sound fun at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is pretty, pretty amazing. So, I, okay, I can see how that would build some trust and some teamwork. What about creativity or innovation? Well, I think the biggest thing, it's in, in the same context. If you think about the behaviors that are attributed to creativity or innovation, it's you know things like freedom to fail or freedom to experiment, try new things, work together on things, suggest new ideas, all these sort of behaviors around creativity. And you think about those they're all kind of rooted in trust, right? That, okay, freedom to fail. You know, if, if I go and do some really cool experiment and I fail miserably, if I don't have a boss that trusts that I'm on the right path or that I'm, it's okay for me to take these risks, you know, that could end very poorly. And so in the context of a game, failure is a lot less risky, right? So I can, mm-hmm. I can try something in the context of a game and if I fail miserably, well, I lost the game. If I fail miserably in, in my day job, you know, maybe I have an awkward conversation with my manager, like, well, why did you do that? And so I'm more incented to take risks and experiment and work with others and do all these things that lead to creativity and innovation. I'm more likely to do those in the context of a game because the risk is lower. Oh, it's just a game. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and people, you know, there's... There's a lot of discussion around, you know, do you call these games or gamification or we call them productivity games. But the word game, you know, has a connotation that that some people don't think belongs in the workplace. And yet, you know, if you think about sort of the upcoming generation, you know, virtually everyone is a gamer. And what's fun about games is that they are voluntary. You can come and go as you please. And so when you build this structure around some activity and call it a game, people are more, feel more liberated to take risks that they wouldn't take in a, in a regular you know, work environment. Mm-hmm. What about when you look at the possibilities for gamifying work beyond typical player versus player competition, which is sometimes called zero-sum games, mm-hmm. where there's winner-take-all rewards that are getting to be pretty commonplace are, are what mm-hmm. have you had? Do you have any examples of possibilities that go beyond that? Yeah. So what what we found in our lessons learned out of this is, you know, everyone's different in what we do in software testing. A diverse population is exactly what we want. So, you know, the the glory and shame of the leaderboard or the zero sum game or player versus player works for some people, but not everybody. And particularly across cultures, there's some cultures that have a strong reaction to that sort of leaderboard hierarchical mentality. And so we try and sprinkle elements of 
virtually all types of game design. So player versus environment. So can we put puzzles and hidden tokens and things like that? Player versus self. Can you beat your own high score? Can you do this certain activity so many days in a row? And then we've also had a lot of luck with altruism, you know, play for charity or play to raise awareness around a particular issue. And so the play, quote unquote, is crowdsourced effort, but it now has a a bigger meaning to the players. So when we think about our product in Skype, I'm sure people are familiar with it, you know, so if you as a a Skype user uh, have a dropped call or the software crashes from a test team perspective, that's we're pretty excited about that, right? We caught a bug, particularly if it's pre-release, right? If it's, if it's after release, we're not that excited. But if it's pre-release, that really helps us improve the quality. The problem is that you're probably not quite as excited as are because you probably were making a real phone call. And so how can we incent and motivate you to install a pre-release version? If you do run into an issue, give us logs or give us feedback. And so using games and game mechanics and altruism and, and all these different elements to keep you as a quote-unquote player or beta tester engaged with the product and willing to take a little extra time to give us feedback is very valuable to our test process. So can you give us an example of what some of those game elements that you've used with Skype uh, would feel like for the user? Yes. The Hangman game we did early on was a a spell beta one, so B-E-T-A one, and you would do certain activities to earn a letter B, and then we would have a uh, sort of a leaderboard of, okay, here's everyone that's earned the letter B and so on. And then we've done some stuff around, you hit a certain scenario and and you might hit a marker in the code and you get a little fireworks thing goes off, a little animation goes off in a window, pops up. We've done some stuff where you might get a, you know, an instant message from a sort of a game master when you perform a certain activity. And so these are, these are sort of uh, player versus environment. So little, just sprinkling little hidden things throughout. And as people kind of hit these speed bumps along the way, they get some little trigger to say you, you uncovered something. And those would be examples where the sort of reward, it's, a, it's not a, a tangible reward, but there's something that happens that, that gives pleasure to the player. And it, there's a bit of surprise involved. It's not, I do this and I get a reward where it's contingent. It's a little more unexpected, which brings a, a, an element of fun to the game. Yes. So we can say, go see if you can find the hidden coin. Mm-hmm. And we think it's in there. We might send a hint out and you know say, hey, it's in the area where you're making a phone call. And, and it might not be exactly making a phone call, but somewhere in that area, you know, oh, hell, if I hit the mute button, it, this lights up and I get a little animation or a little fireworks or something. So the idea of sort of sprinkling things around the environment where people will go search out and really what they're doing is they're exercising different features within the product. And then, you know, we, we can get an idea of, you know, from some of our instrumentation and we can get an idea for how easy it is to do some of these things. And again, most of the pre-release work, actually pretty much all our, our games have been sort of Microsoft employees pre-release experimentation. And so that way we can get some good data around usage patterns and things like that and then use you know so just collect a bunch you know the whole big data thing just collect a bunch of data and then when we see we need more data in this area we can sprinkle some game elements in that area and then send out hints and say see if you can go go find this thing over here and then that will give us the data we need to kind of make some prioritization decisions 
And then for player versus self, we've done some things. It's, it's, you know, how many days in a row can you do a certain activity? So maybe enrolling your machine in a, in a test process overnight, can you do that five days in a row or seven days in a row? Um, and so you kind of beat your own high score and then we'll have sort of a, a, a dashboard or a report that shows your high score of how many days in a row you were able, you were able to do that. Maybe we compare to others, maybe not. It's important to show there's some transparency. So when people find an issue uh, that they can go and see and track it through our review process so that they can see, hey, the thing I found actually got fixed. And so just kind of appealing to, hey, you are making a difference and here's how you can track exactly what that feedback is an important, obviously an important part of games. And, you know, if you pick up the sword and try and slay the dragon and he breathes fire on you, you realize the sword wasn't the weapon you needed. Um, <laughs> We need that kind of feedback as part of our games in a slightly different manner to say, okay, I found something. Is this the right thing or not? Now, Ross, those are some really cool-sounding, fun-sounding examples of taking things that would otherwise be tedious work and making them a lot more interesting. But beyond the sort of anecdotal evidence, do you have any data that shows whether or not it's making a meaningful difference? Yeah, well, you know, there's, again, mixed reaction to the use of the word game. And so we are very meticulous and rigorous about data collection. So we do have comparative A-B studies. Um, the interesting thing that we've learned is that pretty much everything we're asking here has the potential to compete with traditional reward systems. So we've kind of come up with a matrix of where we think games work and where they don't. And if you think about, so we've broken skills out into core skills that everyone has, unique skills that only I have or the reason I'm employed, expanding skills, which are things I can learn to do better in my job. And then sort of the rows on this table or the in-roll behaviors and the citizenship behaviors that we look at. And so if you say, okay, we're going to do the do Ross's job game and we'll deploy this thing to 500 people. Well, if I come in first, does that mean I have to keep my job or does that mean I get promoted? Uh, or if I come in 100th place, what does that mean in my next uh, performance evaluation, right? And so the idea of using games sort of to to just get more work out of people tends to be received poorly because I feel like, oh, well, you're just trying to get me to do more work. Mm-hmm. So unless you sort of gamify the entire reward system and really think, okay, if I if I get to the next level in the game – that's a promotion for me, right? And that could probably work. But where we've found is that these games on the edges are the best way because they don't, because you are going after discretionary time, they don't compete with the traditional reward systems. And so if I'm number one on the leaderboard, I'm not thinking, okay, it's time for me to get promoted. And mm. so, and, and that took us a while to learn that. We had, you know, we had a lot of negative reaction to some of the things we rolled out because we were in that sort of do Ross's job game scenario. And uh, so being very careful about where you use game mechanics, I think is important. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So it's not a good idea to try to necessarily gamify someone's nine to five work. This is what I, this is what I'm here for. But the, the things where you're really pulling after discretionary effort uh, are, are better opportunities. Yeah, because the, the the whole idea of play is fun because it's voluntary, and the ability to come and go doesn't necessarily happen with the nine to five job. And so, again, unless you unless you take the entire reward system and give it context in the game, you'll have much more success if if you stick to sort of citizenship behaviors where where people have skills like language speaking or typing or 
reviewing, trying scenarios, testing out software, things where, hey, I know how to make a phone call on Skype. You know, I'll go do that. It's, it's going to be much more fun. Now, you're kind of looking at that question through the lens of a model that you've developed that helps a business leader assess whether gamification is an appropriate strategy for a, a given business process. Can you, mm-hmm. And you're sort of looking at a matrix, I think, right? Yes. So can you outline those two, those two axes for us? Yeah, so there's, there's three columns, and the columns just label them CUE, which is based on Elizabeth Smith's work of core skills, unique skills, and expanding skills. And then the two rows are your in-role behaviors, and what's called OCBs or organizational citizenship behaviors. And really you want the lower left and the upper right is check marks and that's where games work well. Uh, the upper right is games for learning. So expanding skills for in-role behavior, games work great. And then what we've seen like with the language quality game, core skills for citizenship behavior. I'm not on the Windows team, but I speak Spanish. I can take a look at a few, at a few dialogues that have been translated and determine whether they're high quality. And then the do Ross's job is the center column, big X there, because uh, it's competing with existing reward system. Okay, great. And we'll put a, in our show notes for this episode, we'll put a link to uh, where you have that graphic laid out for anybody who's more visually oriented and can't picture okay. that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's a little easier. <laughs> yep. Now you're coming from Microsoft where you have tons of programmers available to you and th- th- because this all sounds highly customized. Are you aware of resources or what would somebody at a a different type of company do if they would like to add gamification to some productivity tasks? Uh, Well, there's there's a couple companies uh, that have come up that offer uh, some platforms to do this. Um, Bunchball and Badgeville are a couple. But what we've seen, there's, there's some dispute on does gamification the term gamification sort of cheapen game design and is it being misused? And I think there's a risk, you know, you can't just slap a badge on a website and say, okay, go. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't last and can often backfire. What we've seen is the, a lot of this sort of, now we happen to work with software developers, right? But a lot of the incoming generation has an aspiration. I mean, they're gamers, right? So, Hey, would you help us design a game? Even if it's an analog game. I mean, I can put yellow stickies on my door and make a leaderboard. Mm-hmm. So engaging the what would be some of your audience or some of your team to help, you know, just brainstorm, hey, let's make a game out of this. Can we do it? Uh, you know, we have seen that people are very interested in doing that because most, most of this next generation are gamers. Um, but a couple of these platform companies have, uh, have some sort of, I don't want to say turnkey, but have some game elements that are that are possible to deploy. And then again, you you'll still want to brainstorm around design. Mm-hmm. Ross, you have an organization and a website that helps other people learn more about this productivity games, and has resources that people can find to learn more about it. Can you share that with us? Sure. Yeah, we call it Forty Two Projects. The website is Forty Two Projects dot org. Uh, Forty Two in deference to Douglas Adams and the answer to life, the universe, and everything from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, <laughs> really, what we we've been doing this for many many years and and have paid uh, fairly extensive tuition into what works and what doesn't. And so we try and be as transparent and share as much as we can so that people can build on our work and not go down and make the same mistakes 
we've made it. So I have a, you know, there's a, a bunch of references on books that we found useful. And then we really kind of, 42 Projects is sort of three pillars, which is how do we innovate in the way we manage to better accommodate the new generation? How do we uh, intersperse games and play in the workforce? And how do we build organizational trust? And so sort of those three pillars are interrelated. And I know we've talked a lot about play today, but uh, a lot of our data and findings from games we've deployed and virtually we've done a paper on every game we've done so that's all up there and then well and certainly i'm happy to answer you know if people have questions or whatever that my contact information is up there so happy to answer any questions where do you think about the future of gamification and work i think the uh, if you think about the globalization of the workforce the incoming generation being raised with games and being raised with digital technology you know, by 20, I think it's 2022, everyone is going to be a digital native, right? And the idea of, you know, if you watch two-year-olds play games on a, on a tablet these days, it's, it's phenomenal. And so when we think about the future of work, where we have a global workforce, I think we're going to see more and more of games as a, as a business process. And really, and, and I'd like to see companies start to think about, well, can we, can we gamify the entire human resources experience so that all the traditional rewards are tied into a structure of a game? Because if you think about what gamers get in terms of transparency, the sword example I used earlier, feedback, transparency, it's immediate, right? I, I mm-hmm. go down the wrong path. I realize right away I went down the wrong path or I jump up and hit the mushroom. I, I got 500 points and some chimes go off. Whereas in the workplace, I might do something and I might not find out till next year's performance evaluation that that was a good thing or a bad thing. And so being able to give that immediate feedback to employees, I think, is a good thing going forward. And games can give us that. Ross Smith from Microsoft, thank you for joining us on Game Changer. Ah, Jesse, thanks very much. Appreciate the time. We'll provide Ross's contact information and links to two presentations he's given, including his most recent at GSummit 13, in our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash GC12, as in Game Changer Episode 12. And if you're working on the Game Changer series puzzle, our clue for Episode 12 is the letter P as in pineapple. There are other clues in each of the first 14 episodes in the Game Changer series, as well as in Engaging Leader Podcast Episode 38 featuring Kevin Werbach. From those 15 clues, if you can be the first person to guess the secret phrase, you will win a $100 gift card from Amazon, and everyone who guesses it correctly will be honored on our Game Changer Genius Board. And I have to say, nobody has yet won. So as soon as you think you know the secret phrase, email to me at jesse at engagingleader.com. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the weekly leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, where my guests and I share more ways to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Until next time, remember, life is short, so keep it fun. You can find both Game Changer and Engaging Leader podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. To stay up on the latest news and trends in internal gamification, join the Game Changer group on LinkedIn. We'll automatically direct you to our LinkedIn group when you go to engagingleader.com group. Subscribe to our e-digest at engagingleader.com newsletter. When you do, we'll send you a free copy of Jesse's ebook, Eight Communication Tools for Leaders. You can also follow Jesse on Twitter, at Jesse Leahy, 
and like us at facebook.com slash engagingleader. Game Changer is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that helps mid-sized and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, and Peter McIsaac, who composed our theme music. 